This episode of Life Behind Bars is brought to you by Westland Whiskey. Welcome to a special edition of Life Behind Bars. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast Half Full Editor. Joining me as always is my colleague and co-host, David Wondrich. And we also have our esteemed colleague, half-full columnist Lou Bryson and co-founder and master distiller of Westland Whiskey, Matt Hoffman. Welcome, gentlemen. Howdy. Hey, hey. Hello. Thanks for for having me. Dave and I have been hearing a lot recently about the term terroir. Um, I I hope I am pronouncing it correctly. You are. Um, And, you know, good, good. Otherwise, it sounds like terror. Doesn't Um, it, though? But... uh, (laughs) We hear a lot about it in, you know, whiskey stories, uh, whiskey podcasts, advertisements. And, you know, it's one of these things I think people love to throw around, whether or not they actually understand what it means or why it's important. Should we start with like where this this word came from and like this this sort of general idea of terroir for whiskey? It came into whiskey from the wine world, you know, which is not maybe always the best fit <laughs> wine you know is made it's made from grapes which are generally grown locally they don't travel so well so they're usually grown picked crushed and then distilled if they're distilled or made into wine you know fermented in in either case and and, and it's it's always pretty local so the concept of terroir there is a little bit clearer the sense of place as reflected in the wine what each region gives, each micro region gives to the wine, but whiskey's a little different. I'm not a wine person. I, I like wine. I enjoy drinking wine. I have tried not to learn much about it because I I feel overwhelmed. There's not enough room in your head, Lou. Oh There's, my God, it's insane. You already know so much about beer and whiskey. Like, I, yeah, please, I, like, leave I, some room for others out there to learn about. <laughs> <laughs> But the, the thing I, that I, as I was getting, the thing I, as I understand it, the wine idea of terroir also includes the place that it is made, like physically made, the place that it is pressed, the place that it is fermented, the place that it is um, aged, and, and the people doing it, their experience, their um, traditions. Yeah, they're micro traditions, really, even, you know, just the individual things. It is a wider thing than just the grapes. It's a remarkably uh, baggy term. Yeah, it's kind of flexible, isn't it? It includes whatever people want to include if they're making a point. And and excludes stuff they don't want. Exactly. (laughs) This is part of the issue, is... uh... If you if you speak to a native French speaker, the word terroir includes all of the things that you guys were just saying. You know, it is it is where stuff is grown. It is the soil conditions. It is the aspect of the slope. It is the you know the geology of the surrounding region. Yeah. But it is also about the people who make it, as as Louis as Lou was saying, and that's that's the thing that I think gets lost in the English translation when most people say terroir. Um, in the English language, including most winemakers, in my experience. I was going to say that because it seems yeah. like there's a California definition and a French yeah, definition. Absolutely. It feels yeah. like they, they they are part of the problem is the wine industry were the ones who lost that, actually. <laughs> Can I quote you on that? <laughs> uh, we're recording right now, so it's fine. Good, right? don't so, need to. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, but just, no, I really do think so. I think the way that people talk about terroir has been limited. It's been lost. It's lost part of it when it's come to the English language. 
Well, it, you know, it, I think it's part of that inconvenience uh, factor is that uh, in France, the people involved are, are like eighth generation yeah. uh, who, who, you know, grew up there and all their people grew up there. In California, often it's like a venture capitalist who was, uh, <laughs> you know, working for Procter and Gamble first right. and then had a hedge fund and then, you know, uh, right. bought, bought a winery and and hired a bunch of people from all over the country. And, and so it, it's a little harder to make the argument that you know, these are our long standing traditions here. Uh, but no, but I, I would actually disagree here is that they, they may may not want to make that argument, but the expression of their culture is there nonetheless. Oh yeah. Oh, you know, this, mm-hmm. this is the thing. You know, you're going to make whiskey like a venture capitalist would, and you're going to run it and you're going to do it by the numbers and you're not going to take into consideration um, broad brushstrokes here in venture capitalists. But like, if you think about somebody who's making it, who's not coming from this background of, of making wine, if somebody is making wine by the numbers, the wine will will look like it is made by the numbers. It will taste yeah. like yeah. it is made. Yeah. It'll, it'll try to hit, you know, Robert Parker, 95 points. Mm-hmm. And it's going to try to be in a big booming category and made the way that the mass market likes it. And that in and of itself is an expression of, of cultural, the cultural element of, of terroir. Yeah. But that's the element that they don't want to talk about. Of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? See, this conversation is already going exactly the way I want it to. So. <laughs> you know, I, the idea that it means, you know, like Earth and it's the land yeah. and that every specific spot on Earth, you know, will produce a different, you know, wine or whiskey, right? And to a certain extent, that's absolutely true, right? But there are certain caveats, right? The wine people, whether or not they're actually growing the grapes, that's the assumption that everybody has, right? And And so... And the same thing with whiskey. I think people have this idea that all distillers, you know, have a field that they go out and they harvest and then they make the whiskey from that. And and Matt, I mean, I think you're probably one of the very few people who still makes whiskey that way. I mean, for the large majority of the industry is buying grains from the same. Yeah, commodities. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just. That's, I mean, this, and even for us, you know, we're still, we're at about 40, 45% non-commodity grains that's a lot um and we will be it is a lot and we will be our goal is to be at 100 off the commodity system by 2025 probably one of the few distilleries in the world we're trying to do that because the commodity system by design which is which which is for all grains all whiskey making grains is not unique to the u.s whiskey industry or scotland it is designed to be the opposite of the environmental terroir things. It is designed to eliminate yeah. differences between right. farms. It is designed to eliminate differences between vintages and stuff like that. So it's very difficult. You know, you're right. There is this like kind of myth. I think that people, you know, Oh, just beyond the, the bourbon plant here, there's, there's, there's corn over here. We've been growing it. We promise. You know, the thing is I've heard distillers say, well, the corn we grow is all from with a hundred within a hundred miles. And that, Sounds good. It's like the whole locavore thing. Mm-hmm. But then I'm thinking, you know, if I'm at home in my house in eastern Pennsylvania, a hundred mile radius is like the whole way from the Appalachians to the Atlantic. It encompasses a lot. You can find differences there. I mean, America's a big country. That's the beauty of it. Is mm-hmm. that a hundred miles for you in eastern Pennsylvania is going to be a very different hundred miles than it is for me here in Seattle. You know? Oh yeah. So. Yeah, could there be more also if somebody's like tightens that radius or just says 
this farming valley versus this farming valley, yes. But you can also paint a little bit in broad brush strokes if you're looking at certain um, macro regions of the US, I would say. But, you know, there's also the issue of like grain varietals, which uh, often exactly where the, the grain is grown doesn't mean so much if they're using uh, the same modern hybridized uh, for productivity varietals that kind of yeah the same wherever they're grown instead of ones that grew up in that microclimate or that part of the country and grew to uh to, to fit those conditions yeah grown from previous generations i feel like this is one of the most fascinating parts about the terroir discussion in whiskey because i do think i do think people are trying to be more transparent about mm-hmm. where stuff is coming from i mean a lot of people aren't but there is there is momentum towards it yeah. and i do feel like people are seeking it out uh, big distilleries, small distilleries. I do think people are trying to figure out how we do it. One of the the, the interesting things about terroir, we talk about the great terroir of like Burgundy, right? That's a terroir, an environmental terroir and a person terroir, but matched with the Pinot Noir grape and the Chardonnay grape. Right. And it's the combination of those two things that makes Burgundy so special burgundy wine it's not just that it's a burgundy if they try to grow you know uh cab Sauv in burgundy that terroir is, is terrible for it <laughs> right um so i that's one of the most interesting things that we're still not seeing in the whiskey industry and you'll see um you know like waterford you know is, is doing amazing things with with terroir in terms of these different um farms in yeah. ireland mm-hmm. um, you know, that's one of the things that's coming out here but the place we still haven't gone yet, which is kind of the direction where we're trying to go here, is like, let's figure out those varietals first. If you're still using like, the, if you're still using Concerto, which is the commodity varietal for all of the UK, you're still kind of expressing terroir with one hand held behind your back. Right. So we're trying to push that as well. And that, this is not easy. Like this is going to take decades to try to, you know, find new varietals, first of all, off the commodity system to begin with, and then to match them with specific environmental terroirs you know that's well, it's, a, it's that's a that's a journey with someone in the middle of it it's kind of like losing weight it it took a long time to put it on it's it's going to take a while to take it off you can't just turn around from the commodity <laughs> system and you know yeah well and, and you're you're limited by you know the grain breeding process um you know we're and we're fully funding like this phd student over at uh, washington state university mount vernon and you're off the commodity system there's no public funding to go outside of that so so we're funding that ourselves, but you know he's crossing these varieties as a grain breeder up there. And I think the point here is to understand that there is something else that's out there in whiskey making. You know, like there's there's another way to approach it, and it does take time, and that's okay. I mean, whiskey times are a thing. The 20th century was was so horrible for traditions because it was a century of such emergency. You know that I mean, like World War II, everybody had to get rid of any traditions they had that were unproductive. Uh, because it was all hands on deck. We need stuff now. We need the most. And it was very hard to get back afterwards. And, and I think part of this has to be uh, reestablishing those, uh, some of these ties to, to, to traditions that have, have been chopped off. Uh, you know, the traditions of, of the kind of grain that grows in this valley best uh, or that grew up with this valley, uh, local yeasts, all kinds of things like that that were all pretty much uh, tossed out between 1940 and 1960. And it, it's, that's, it's a lot of work to put that stuff back together, no matter what kind of spirit you're making. It's like- This, a- is, this, is, 
this is the big aha moment that I've had speaking with other people way outside of the right. whiskey space, actually mm-hmm. getting into the, into the food space and farming space, working with a, of like a friend of ours, his name is Jack Algier. He's the director of Stone Barn Center of Agriculture yeah. in New York, uh, just associated with Blue Hill, famous restaurant, Dan Barber. And he had this, you know, great quote that when we visited him last, that we're still in wartime agriculture in this country. Yeah. We have, you know, basically people with the exception actually of, of slave communities in the South really never connected with the agriculture that supports it and created a cuisine that is based off of it. Cuisine also including the beverages, including whiskey that we make and that, you know, people moved West and did a ter- such a terrible job at farming that the Dust Bowl happened. And then, <laughs> and then we've been here in this industrialized system that, you know, where there's no nuance to everything and it's just all the same commodity corn grown across 90% of the country. And there's just so much, there's so much more that needs to happen here. And you're right, Dave, it is about going backwards and looking at things, but it is also about recognizing that why, why is this commodity approach appealing to people? Right. You know, and there's a safety in commodities. You don't need to know who you're selling it to actually by design. You're, you know, you grow the grain, you sell it to a grain elevator. If you're you know, in the malt business, that grain elevator sells it to a, a maltster and, and all these pieces are disparate. And so one of the more interesting aspects of all of this is that there's a looking forward, there's a reconnection to community that comes with this, which I just find to be incredibly fascinating that what we have lost is more than just, you know, more than just the fact that different grains can grow in different places and express different flavor characteristics and all of that is awesome in and of itself, but we have lost community as, as a part of that. And we don't even know it, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's really remarkable when you think about the consequences of that. Um, I was out there when you guys had me out to visit um, and we went to the, uh, the bread lab with Steve Jones. Right. Yep. Um, one of the things he said that is still with me. In fact, I have a, a, a Google map set up to remind me of it is how many fewer mills there are now, how many fewer grain mills there are in the country. I mean, we used to have about 10,000 and now mm-hmm. there's about 150. I think the number is actually 20,000. Wow. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the number of jobs that represented, you know, absolutely. Yeah. I think the point is that the focus, you know, for a long time was on yield, right? Yeah. It was this idea yeah. of maximizing yield you know, farming to feed, you know, the largest number of people. And I, I remember years ago, I was in Scotland, maybe 15 years ago, and I thought I was slick, you know, and I started asking one of the big distillers, you know, about their grain. And, and the guy just looked at me like I was nuts. Like, <laughs> he was like, what, what do you mean? Like, we all use at the time, I don't know, it was optic or home or whatever, whatever strain it was. And he like very patiently was like, look, we all use, we all have the same grain. Like that it's not, it's not about the grain dummy. Like basically it's, it's that we put our, you know, it's a blank canvas. We all buy the same canvas essentially. And it's how we use the grain. That's where the flavor comes from. They've all got the same yeast. Well, (laughs) well, that's, I mean. Right. I mean that, and then, and, you know, but as I, you know, I, at the time I was like, oh, well, that, you know, that makes sense, I guess. And then, you know, you think about it more and it's, Wait you start thinking about things. Well, everybody uses the same yeast. Everybody uses the same grain. Everybody uses roughly the same still from the same still maker. The barrels come from the same barrel makers. You know, mm-hmm. where is, where is the place coming from? Where is the difference coming from? 
Well, this, this has a really interesting consequence. And I think one of, one of my, one of the things I realized recently in the past few years is that the whiskey industry itself has not had the same evolution that the wine industry has had. The wine industry, you know, you had monks in Burgundy to keep using our Burgundy example, you know, who were studying the exact combination of grape varietal and soil type mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. And the whiskey industry, and part of the thing that I love about the whiskey industry, in fact, is that it, it's a lot more utilitarian. You know, it's based off of of excess grain and and it's kind of got that, um, you know, that that edge to it. Whereas like if you're planting vines somewhere, life's probably pretty good <laughs> as a general rule. Whereas like with whiskey, it's this is the grain I've gotten. I don't want it to go to waste. So the, what the, happened in the wine industry is that it has de- it had developed a, an arc of like, here, here's what good and bad wine would be and sourcing of all these different things. And the whiskey industry itself, not just the grain, but the whiskey industry itself has never had that moment. The whiskey industry itself has not, is not treated itself, its distilleries as non-commodities. So what you're seeing out of the Scottish whiskey industry, though, which is absolutely true, is that distilleries were making the same thing over and over and over again at the maximum possible yield. And that's what a commodity is because they would be bought and sold, especially you look at the Scottish whiskey industry, bought and sold in exchanges because that's the blending industry. That's what that was. And now there's, a, I think, a moment of reckoning for distilleries. We go, you don't, we don't have to behave that way anymore. You know, there's never been a better time to be a whiskey maker, whiskey drinker in this country, but also whiskey maker because people are really paying attention and you can afford to not like try to make the same thing over and over and over again now because, because people will pay attention. Whereas before they wouldn't admittedly, like even 20 years ago, people would thought of you were crazy doing stuff like this. So just beginning to like behave more like winemakers, you know, that is, that's the good news. The bad news I think is that it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to <laughs> yeah. do, right? I mean, well, it's, it's hard I mean, and it's risky, right? That's I mean, good. Yeah, the commodity stuff, like you know, even the heirloom tomatoes, right? You know, why did heirloom tomatoes go away? Well, because some of the varieties they may taste delicious, but they're very hard to grow, right? Or, or they don't have a consistent fragile. yield, yeah. or they're fragile, or you know, some of the grains, if they grow too high, they'll snap in the wind or you have to do crop rotation more of it. So, I mean, it, there was a reason, I mean, you know, farming, you know, is one of these things where you read about all the things that can go wrong and often do go wrong. And it's amazing that we ever get like a successful crop, right. Or that, you know, given the, you know, it's affected by weather and all these types of variables, right. Have to all come together. So, like, I, I understand why it was tempting for people to go to to eliminate some of these variables, right? To to make their lives easier, right? To grow these commodity grains. All of these things, Noah, is is to serve a system of industrialization and of centralization. To lose point right. about right. going from you know twenty thousand mills to to two hundred mills, you can grow. I've got Cherokee purple tomatoes in my in my garden right now, growing. You know, and the farmer that I, you know, get all my vegetables from, I've been, you know, with a CSA for five years, community support agriculture program, get a subscription of vegetables from a farm, you know, every week. And they have no problem because they, they know what they can grow to feed a local system. Yeah. And it doesn't have to go to 
they're not selling tomatoes to New York. They're selling tomatoes to their neighbors 20 miles down the road. And so the, the problem is, is, is this kind of lowest common denominator thinking that is true in commodities in food. It's true in lowest common denominator, you know, this, this idea in grain, you know, they're going to say, well, we can't grow heirloom tomatoes because we have to ship these heirloom tomatoes from, you know, again, let's say the middle of the country to every coast and it's got to be red. Well, do we actually have to do that? That's somebody who's growing stuff in the middle of the country that wants to ship to the coasts. But what, what, why don't we just grow it on the coasts? A lot of it is a defeatist attitude because we don't know any better. We don't know anything else other than this industrial system of agriculture. We used to is, is, is what, what really kind of gets me is uh, yes. before prohibition, there were a lot of very large distilleries, very technologically advanced distilleries in America, but there are also a, who coexisted with them just fine. A whole lot of small local distilleries that had you know, sold locally to local markets through local saloons that were much beloved, their product, it, it fit the, the taste of the region. And they they somehow managed to coexist. The the big brands, the national brands, made a lot of money, and they did a consistent product that that you know you knew was going to be the same everywhere. But at the same time, you could also get like some local rye that was different from the local rye on the other side of the mountain that had you know different yeast and different uh, strains of rye and used a different kind of still and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it, it just that that whole ecosystem was swept away by prohibition in World War II. I mean, they tried to reestablish it in the 30s, but it was too fragile to, 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 to stand up to World War II. And we really were seeing it again coming back, which is great. But you could see how painful it is to reestablish this kind of thing. It's a lot of work. No, I want to come back to something that you were saying earlier yeah. about um, the distilleries in Scotland and, and looking for yields. And you can be guilty of demonizing when you're looking for flavors to demonize yield, but yield in and of itself is not a thing to demonize. Yield is good. Yield means economic viability. Yeah. You know, to, the question is, can you do it also while doing other interesting things? And one of the biggest myths that I think is out there, and I will admit to being as guilty of believing it when we got into this business as everybody else is that you can't have it all. You can't have yield and you can't have flavor. The problem is it comes back to this lowest common denominator idea of big sweeping commodity agriculture. I'll give you a great example. One of the one in our work with with Washington State University in the bread lab, you know, where they're working off the commodity system, there was a variety that was growing east of the Cascades, very different agricultural climate than here west of the Cascade Mountains in Seattle that was rejected by the commodity system and didn't yield enough uh, per acre um, out there in the Palouse region. And they were about to throw it away because it was rejected by the system, which meant, you know, it couldn't grow well in Montana, it couldn't grow well in, you know, in the Dakotas and places like that. And yet one of the researchers here west of the Cascades, um, I mean, Dr. Steve Lyon, he was, he was growing this in his test plots here west of the Cascades. And he was actually finding that it yielded 30% more than what would have been considered an excellent per acre yield, but only in the Western Washington climate. And so one of one of the part of the, you know the part of the problem here is like when you when you're trying to be the master of all climates, especially in the U.S. as such a big country, you know it's you're very very limited. Whereas if you begin to look at different locations, there are going to be types of barley that are really flavorful and really thrive, but only will thrive in certain regions. And the and this is a big part of getting out of the commodity system. This is true for 
barley, all grains, but also all the things we eat. If you match that type of thing you're eating, whether it's the grain or it's a tomato to, you know, an environmental terroir, you actually can have bounty and flavor at the same time. Those things tend to want to thrive together, but they have to, you have to take the time and put the effort in to match them and to, and to say that it's okay, that it's not going to be the same all across the country. You know, it's okay that we're not growing the same barley in every state across the U.S. That's all right. And experiment and kind of also be comfortable with deviation sometimes. It's just a whole other set of goals. Absolutely. And so much of whiskey is based upon consistency, right? That, you know, from batch to batch, year to year, nobody was looking for, you know, up until recently, single barrels and interesting products. They wanted the same whiskey, right? I mean, a lot of brands made one product forever, right? And any deviation was just blended out or it was drunk by the people who worked there. There was no market and the brands didn't want to create a market for those things. I mean, so much of what we see today is like a fairly new phenomenon in, in terms of all these mm-hmm. experiments and, and one-offs. And yeah, I meet a lot of younger, younger whiskey drinkers who don't realize that. You know, they just assume that the single barrel, small batch, et cetera thing has, that's the way it's always been. Yeah. It's hugely different from, I mean, even 20 years ago. And the whole blending system in Scotland, right? I mean, is based upon the idea of the the sum is greater than the parts. Yeah. Right? We don't want soloists. We want an orchestra. We're going to blend it all out so it plays in harmony, right? For now, it's like, you know, you see all these brands pulling out the single malts from the blends and bottling them as single malts or one-offs, yeah. right? I mean, because that's, that's what people want. They, they appreciate you know, from year to year, there might be a difference. The last time that we chatted, Matt, we were talking as is, is, is over is in December in the winter. We we're talking a lot about um, your program of harvesting local wood, even, you know, going into people's yards, cutting down a, with, a, their a, permission, a, with their permission. With their permission. With their permission. <laughs> <laughs> no, that'd, be, <laughs> that'd be amazing. Just wake up, your tree's gone. <laughs> yeah. What happened to oh, those our tree? That would be better to do oh. it in the middle of the day. Don't. <laughs> Yeah, just, just put on a, a, a day glow vest and it'll be fine at our day. Yeah, I'm supposed totally. to be here. You you, yeah. you called me here, remember? I got the work invoice. You're talking about sort of this idea of even even trying to find like a local like species of wood, right? Instead of just using, you know, uh, oak from you know the same same forest that everybody mm-hmm. used or the same cooperages. Yeah, the, the local oak thing was big for us. I and mean, that started with, you know, you just look at the exploration of Quercus Alba, the American white oak. And it's the workhorse of the the world's entire whiskey industry. You know, it's the backbone of, it and still is is the majority of of the whiskey that we make here. But the reality is, is that over here on the West Coast, we don't grow Grecasalba. You know, it's basically what Missouri East, you know, essentially, and all the way to the Canadian border down to the Gulf. And then you know, you look into it, and okay, there is the species of oak here. And I feel like that line of thinking, I guess I would say, in this new generation, is not terribly uncommon now of like okay what do we have around here locally mm-hmm. but we were able to the problem is, is there hasn't there wasn't there was no legacy of coopering gary oak which is what this this oak species is called here in the pacific northwest and the challenge here is is twofold the first is in like okay it's easy to ask the question right everybody has a million ideas it's easy to ask the question but when it comes to doing it to working on it you've got to have other people who are not in your industry or in the coopering business, the logging business, 
who are also asking that question. And that is a bit of a, you know, you need to have an element of, of a culture that supports asking those questions rather than just kind of shutting it down. This is where, you know, some distilleries in Scotland, I would say, you know, our sister distillery, Brooklady, would ask questions about different barley varieties, but if nobody there is ready to help them ask that question, it, it doesn't, you know, they can only go so far and they've pushed it quite far on their own and working directly with farmers. But, you know, there's something that's unique that has happened here in both the barley sourcing, the stuff we've been doing at the bread lab and the farmers here, but also with, with Gary Oak in that there are people here who are trying to, who are seeing the potential for it. So that's the first part. But the second part is also kind of giving it respect and treating it for, for what it is. And, and actually the, I think one of the most interesting parts of the Gary Oak story here is that it had a false start with the wine business. You know, back in the, back in the nineties, a lot of winemakers were thinking kind of the same way. As I said, a lot of people have these thoughts, you know, let's use this Gary Oak. It only grows here. Um, it's totally unique. The, you know, the, the fact that we can make wine that, that has matured at a, you know, oak cast that only grows in this like little 50 mile wide region between two mountain ranges is, is a really cool thing to be able to do. And they put wine in it and they, they essentially collectively said, well, this doesn't taste like French oak. See you later. <laughs> and, and, so they, and they stopped. Yeah. Uh, and because, because it doesn't taste like French oak, cause it has a dramatically different taste. And they said, well, okay, but we need to use French oak. It needs to be like French oak. And like, and so they stopped. In fact, a lot of the the wood that we bought, um, you know, probably five or six years ago, was stave material left around because the winemakers changed their minds <laughs> collectively wow. as an industry. And 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 the thing is, they're right. It's not like French oak, and it's not like American oak at all. And so, I think one of one of the things that you need to you need to do when you do this, and whether this is true for oak or or you know barley, the grain you source, whatever it is, is no that it's not going to be like what you're getting from other places. Most people I think should be able to see that as a positive. We see that as a positive Gary Oak. There's nothing like Gary Oak mm-hmm. anywhere in the world. And in fact, to be able to like add, this is what the fifth, basically the fifth species of white Oak that's used in the whiskey industry, Like to be able to add something new is as an amazing privilege actually to be able to do that. But that's a mentality of being like this. Yeah, this is going to make whiskey that tastes, you know, like molasses and like, like burnt ends. And like, you know, it's going to add this flavor of whiskey. People are not going to know what it is. You've got to be cool with that. And you've got to be able to roll with it and, and work with it. And the other big part of Gary Oak in particular is not just the flavor profile, but in the fact that in, in my experience, Gary Oak doesn't, for the style of whiskey that we want to make at Westland, where we do balance oak and barley more than I would say most distilleries, you know, is that Gary Oak will dominate things. It is right. not shy, you know, <laughs> when you put stuff in. And that's one of the things I love about it, but it's also like to, to the idea that it would be a complete replacement for the American white Oak for Quercus Alba in that we can put stuff hundred percent in Quercus Alba and be happy about the balance between the Oak and the barley. We don't find the same thing out of that with Gary Oak, it, it tends to dominate. So the way that we use it is, is with a more kind of light touch, you know, throttle down a little bit and that's, and that's okay. You know, we're just rolling, rolling with it and using it and don't, don't try to fit it together in a certain way, because what you'll find is that you're not really in control. The, the whiskey is going to want to, will want to fit together in a certain way based on what you're working with. And, and that should be an exciting thing to work with. And I think more people are realizing that now today. Do you think all of you that will see more whiskeys that actually reflect 
terroir, you know, either through growing their own grains, making their own barrels, you know, developing yeast strains, what, what have you. Do you think that this is the first of many, like what you're doing, Matt? Or are you going to be, you know, on your own you know, going forward? I think that it depends on the state of our culture across the U.S., but also the whiskey culture at a global level. What is it that we want? What is it that whiskey drinkers want? What do we value? You know, the reason why blends and all the rest of stuff was all consistent, you know, back in the 60s, 50s, 60s is because that's what people wanted. You know, that's what that's the culture. You know, people were looking for consistency and things like that. So there is an understanding here of like, okay, there there is a way to express terroir and, and this combination of this culture part of it, which again, we, as we said at the beginning, kind of gets missed, but also, you know, the environmental terroir that's there. It's a choice though, you know, and there's so much good whiskey that's being made that doesn't have that approach. And we can also recognize that that's okay. You know, we, I mean, as I said earlier, like there's never been a better time to be a whiskey drinker and almost none of the whiskey by percentages is made with any sort of environmental terroir consideration whatsoever. So it's just, it adds something new to the, to the table here and whether people feel like they've got something to add, you know, sometimes some terroirs don't fit, you know, like if somebody, you know, if somebody's trying to like express a hyper, you know, let's say like single malt terroir in Louisiana, like barley will, will hate growing in Louisiana. It can't grow in Louisiana. You know, it's just not the right climate for it. So the question is whether you want that to be a part of your style or not, and whether your your locale can really express it in a way that is favorable because that's one of the big consequences here when you begin working with terroir is that it's going to tell you what you can do and what you cannot do you know up here you know this is not we cannot do the corn thing you know and that's okay just to recognize that like if you're hoping for a, a seattle or or let's say you know british columbia based distillery to like make hyper compelling terroir you know based whiskeys out of corn, um, you know, I think you're mistaken. And I think that makes it more special for the places that can. So I think the the trends are all in the right direction. Everybody is trying to get a closer connection in general. And I mean this in the US, but also in the Western world, because actually Europe and its agricultural system are not great um, compared to the US. You know, people are trying to find a better connection to the things they eat and drink as a general rule. And people, you see it a lot in the farm to table dining industry, but people are beginning to demand it more and more out of all of the beverages that they drink. So, so long as that cultural movement holds, which I hope it does, I mean, not just for Westland, but because that's, that's very much, that's the world that I want to live in. Um, I think you'll see a lot more of it developing, you know, over the next few decades for sure. Well, I think at least, you know, just as it's very American to have a winery that makes every conceivable type of wine white wine, red wine, sparkling wine, rosé, right? You know, where no winery in, in Europe would do, <laughs> right? Where, as the same thing, I think, with a lot of distilleries where, you know, the beginning of the craft spirits movement, people wanted to make everything, right? And you go into a tasting room and there are three dozen spirits that they make. And I think hopefully at this point, now that we're 10, 15 years into this, hopefully people will kind of dial in to what really works right for that area what they do best what that area does best maybe they don't need to import corn from the other side of the country to make a so-so bourbon they make an amazing rye or they make an amazing single malt hopefully we'll get a little bit more focus on what people are drinking i mean that's that's a viable first step 
I don't think we're going to get uh, a huge wave of terroir, you know, real true terroir-based whiskeys. But I think we'll see, we're see we already see some. It's it's a difficult path, but uh, there's definitely room for a niche. I mean, there's a, you look back at like Jack Daniel in the in the uh, in the late 1800s when he was making Tennessee whiskey a really just a certain way. And, you know Lincoln County whiskey, and uh, and that was very successful around the country because yeah. he just did the one thing the same way, you know, that worked best for him in his county. You know, he didn't try to uh, have a diversified product line or anything like that. You know, they held out for so long. I mean, using the the, the most traditional methods. Yeah. You know, even a wooden log still for a long time. What do you think, Lou? It is almost inevitable because every with when you have that many small distillers making whiskey, you're going to have to have a point of difference, and this is a good one. And I don't, I don't want to be that mercenary. Well, no, you should be mercenary about it. It is, it is about selling your whiskey and coming up with a product. And you know, if that serves to get this kind of thing going, more power to them. Yeah, you're you're exactly right, Lou. I mean, at the core of it, I, you know running westland over here like i don't think it is a good business decision to just copy scotland what they're doing they're doing a great job of yeah they do it really <laughs> well they've been doing it for a very be, long time they know it yeah exactly <laughs> you would just be an also ran and I, and I really think that that's an important point lou is that that's a you know just sheer differentiation it happens to also time with this cultural movement of people looking for stuff like this but like you're never gonna beat the you know the biggest bourbon distilleries of what they do in terms of economies of scale and the quality of whiskey that they put out so don't try you know well you know it's 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 that old military ad, adage go where the enemy isn't <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> exactly yeah i remember a uh a craft brewer telling me that's why they make porter he says there's already somebody out there that's really big that makes stout i'm i'm not gonna go, go <laughs> oh yeah i heard stout. of them yeah Good luck with with everything, Matt. Uh, it's exciting stuff. Uh, looking forward to uh, hearing and even more importantly, tasting uh, more of more of your whiskeys as they come out and and they're ready. You know, can I make a quick shameless plug? I, I okay. We've been talking about all this stuff this whole time, and and one of the things that we've just recently released, of course, is this whiskey. It's called Colere. Colere releases basically our exploration of this, of what we've been talking about today, of these explorations of, of different barley varieties that aren't in the commodity system, of, of types of agriculture that are non-commodities, rotation-based agriculture. It is, it is an exploration of, of that journey. So that edition one, you know, just launched in May, and that's, that's available, not widely available, but it is around the U.S. Um, if you can find Westland today. So seek that out, everyone. We had a uh, sneak peek of a couple of months ago of it and it, it really is interesting let us know what you think chime in on twitter we'll be there don't be shy love to hear what you think and thank you matt and lou for for joining us today appreciate it always uh fun to chat whiskey and, and drink whiskey with you thank you guys pleasure anytime cheers Dave and I encourage you to drink responsibly always. 